Section 12 of the English Restoration and Louis the Fourteenth by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9 Louis and Spain. The Dutch Republic, 1660 to 1662. The death of Mazarin in March of 1661 found Europe in a state of almost absolute repose. The Peace of Westphalia had reformed the constitution of the German Empire. The Treaty of the Pyrenees had confirmed a truce in the long warfare of France and Spain, while the relative positions of Sweden, Denmark, and Poland had been settled by the treaties of Copenhagen and Oliva in 1661. The independence of the Dutch Republic had been recognized. The monarchy was permanently re-established in England. Number 1. Personality of Louis the Fourteenth. Already, however, the agencies which were to put an end to this short breathing space were at work. Of these, none was more potent than the ambition and the power of Louis the Fourteenth. That monarch was the central figure of Europe, the despotic sovereign of a united country, and the master of a superb army. Mazarin and the Fronde had schooled him well. To repress his passions, to keep down the princes of the blood, to be distant with his courtiers, to be secret in his business, to cultivate his natural talents for dissimulation, to work hard, these were to be the principles which should make him a great king. Above all, the cardinal had urged him with his dying breath to have no prime minister. He was to succeed to a double power and prestige, those of the monarchy and those of the prime ministership. He took possession of both parts of his inheritance at once. On the day after Mazarin's death, he announced to the council his intention of taking the government solely upon himself. His ministers, his gens d'affaires, he called them, were henceforward to look to him for instructions. His mother and the courtiers laughed at what they imagined was but a passing whim, but the whim lasted more than fifty years. During all that time no man in his kingdom worked harder than he. No dispatch was signed, no agreement sealed, no money paid without his knowledge. His energy and diligence were no more remarkable than his ability. Devoid of political morality, he looked upon the state of Europe with an eye piercing and cynical, while the dispatches written by himself to his ambassadors in all the European courts are models of clearness of expression and correctness of insight. Number two, Louis claims, one, the whole Spanish succession, two, the immediate possession of the Spanish Netherlands. It was in his efforts to establish his claim upon the succession to the Spanish monarchy that these qualities were first exercised. Should Philip the Fourth and his only son die, as seemed probable, without the birth of any other male heir in the meantime, Louis was determined to uphold the right of his wife. That right, as has been seen, was rejected by the Spaniards on the ground that both she and Louis had signed a renunciation. Louis replied, in the first place, that the Spaniards had themselves rendered that renunciation invalid by the non-payment of the dowry, and secondly, 
that no renunciation could be upheld which was contrary to a fundamental law of the spanish monarchy in june 1661 the hereditary prince was on his deathbed another child was about to be born to philip the fourth and his second wife should this be a son the question of renunciation would of course not be raised and the french ambassador was ordered in that case merely to press for the payment of the dowry on november first the prince died but a week later another boy the future charles the second was born and louis's path to the succession to the whole spanish monarchy was thus completely barred for the time his claim too had been contested from another side the second daughter of philip the third unlike louis's mother the elder daughter had signed no renunciation of her rights she had married the late emperor ferdinand and was the mother of the present emperor leopold who therefore claimed in her right to this louis again had a double answer first the old one of the inherent invalidity of all these renunciations secondly that in any case it would be neither his mother nor the emperor's but the present unmarried infanta who if she married would transmit her right to her husband and descendants and therefore unless she married the emperor neither he nor his children could claim in any case this contention of the emperor like that of louis himself fell of course into abeyance at the birth of the new prince but though the prospect of grasping the whole spanish monarchy had thus for the time faded away the ingenuity of louis's advisers had suggested another plan by which he might compass that portion of it most immediately important to him by a local custom of brabant referring solely to private property and in force in some only of the provinces of the low countries it was established that if a man married twice the succession went to the children of the first marriage to the exclusion of those of the second this local custom the use devolutionis as it was called louis audaciously determined to invoke in order to form a claim at philip the fourth's death to the whole of the low countries that king had married twice and louis had married the only daughter of the first marriage the death of the hereditary prince her brother left her therefore if the local and private custom was to be held with regard to the succession a contention ridiculed by the spaniards the heiress to the low countries to the entire exclusion of the children of philip's second marriage the present infanta and the boy just born louis had meanwhile been endeavouring to compass his object by diplomacy hopeless of conquering portugal by force spain aware of the help which louis was unavowedly sending to it though ignorant of his connection with charles the second of england now by promises of eventual consent to the nullity of the renunciation and by urging the argument that england would if not checked grow too powerful at sea endeavoured to draw the french monarchy into a coalition against that country louis's answer was short and decisive ridiculing the idea of england growing too powerful he declared that to justify him in the eyes of europe for such a step he must have striking advantages offered him his terms were number one a secret revocation of the renunciation number two the immediate possession of franche comte luxembourg hainault and cambrai and failing the revocation 
the towns of Aire and Saint-Omer as well. On these conditions alone would he consent to break with the King of England. But Spain was not yet brought low enough to listen to such humiliating terms, and though Louis changed his tone to one of menace, he found himself unable to move the court of Madrid from its attitude of passive resistance to all his claims. In October 1662, the negotiations were finally broken off. Louis had meanwhile been looking elsewhere for means of accomplishing his ends. Number 3. The Dutch Republic In striking contrast to the success of the monarchical principle in France and England was the development of the power of the Dutch Republic. By the side of the absolute monarchy and the caste feeling of France, and the threefold system of king, established church, and parliament in England, was reigning a form of government in which there was neither arbitrary power, aristocratic privilege, nor ecclesiastical supremacy. It consisted of a league of seven provinces, each province preserving perfect independence as regarded its internal affairs, but contributing its share to mutual defence. The province in its turn was a federation of towns, each of which bore to its province the same relation as that of the province to the whole federated body. The town was thus the unit of national life, the basis of the constitution. Its government was in the hands of a town council of varying number, a merchant oligarchy, for the most part self-elected, who delegated their executive power and financial administration to a regent, and it possessed complete autonomy in its own concerns. It sent deputies to the provincial estates, which regulated the entire internal affairs of that province, administrative, financial, military, and judicial. Similarly, each province sent deputies to the states-general, who assisted by a council of state composed of twelve members selected from the different provinces voted upon the imperial questions of the republic peace war and measures for defence fixed the contingent of each province to the army and fleet and had the right of concluding alliances and of nominating the commanders-in-chief both by land and sea each province however was bound to obey the states-general only if its own deputies agreed in the decision, and similarly each town was bound to obey the decision of the provincial council, only if its deputies had concurred. Admirably adapted for the encouragement of local ambition, and for the training of a large proportion of the citizens in the public service, such a constitution was evidently unsuitable for crises when a common danger demanded immediate action on the part of the republic as a whole the need of a central authority overriding the individual interests or prejudices of each province or town was then keenly felt the history of the republic therefore shows a tendency to fall back in times of national peril upon the principle of a limited monarchy and when that danger is over to revert to the original constitution the struggle by which its independence was secured had been carried out under the house of orange to this family it had for a time given the supreme military and civil authority in the person of the first stadtholder william of orange and this authority legally elective had gradually become hereditary four members of the orange house successively ruled over the seven provinces and it was not until sixteen fifty one 
that the attempt of william the second the husband of mary daughter of charles i to acquire absolute sovereignty by a coup d'etat led to the abolition of the stadtholdership the autonomy of each town and province was then re-established and to render impossible the recurrence of an attempt at absolutism the military command was so divided that for purposes of foreign war the army was well-nigh useless the republic had shaken off the domination of a person it now fell under the domination of a single province holland was overwhelmingly preponderant in the federation she possessed the richest most populous and most powerful towns she contributed more than one-half of the whole federal taxation she had the right of naming the ambassadors at paris stockholm and vienna the fact that the states-general met on her territory at the hague necessarily gave her additional influence and prestige it was through her energy that the attempt of william the second had proved abortive she now stepped into the vacant place with the stadtholder's power that of the states-general also as representing the idea of centralization had largely disappeared the provincial estates of holland therefore under the title of their high mightinesses became the principal power to such an extent indeed that the term holland had by the time of the restoration become synonymous among foreign powers with the whole republic their chief minister was called the grand pensionary and the office had been since sixteen fifty three filled by one of the most remarkable men of the time john de witt john de witt therefore represented roughly speaking the power of the merchant aristocracy of holland as opposed to the claims of the house of orange which were supported by the noblesse the army the calvinistic clergy and the people below the governing class abroad the orange family had the sympathy of monarchical governments louis the fourteenth despised the government of monsieur les marchands while charles the second at once the uncle and the guardian of the young prince of the house of orange the future william the third of england and mindful of the scant courtesy which to satisfy cromwell the dutch had shown him in exile was ever their bitter and unscrupulous foe the empire of the dutch republic was purely commercial and colonial and she held in this respect the same position relative to the rest of europe that england holds at the present day to this supremacy many causes had contributed her geographical position between northern and southern europe the rivers from central europe reaching the sea on her shores her extended coastline made her a convenient centre for the reception and distribution of the wealth of all the lands of the earth the natural barrenness of the land and the incessant struggle to keep a footing against the inroads of the ocean had formed a thrifty hardy and patient race while the abundant fisheries on her coasts had made of a large part of her population the most skilful and daring sailors of the world speedily her fleets went farther afield as early as fifteen twenty three no fewer than two thousand vessels making three voyages a year were reaping rich harvests in english and scotch fishing grounds in fifteen forty seven eight ships of war attended to defend them from attack 
and in sixteen thirty five such importance did the dutch attach to this source of their wealth that they paid a sum of thirty thousand pounds for permission to fish that summer in the english waters but meantime and chiefly from a cause of a different nature the trade of the world had been gradually drifting into their hands while central europe was being desolated by the thirty years war the united provinces formed a haven of rest for industry and while every other nation was driving out by war or religious persecution the best of her working population the exiles found a ready welcome in a land in which religious toleration was a fundamental law under this constant influx of skill and enterprise aided by a wise commercial policy the wealth of the country increased with vast rapidity while through her navies developed out of the fishing fleet and formed of vessels which though far roomier than those of other countries were manned with fewer hands she was year by year acquiring a colonial empire in every continent and absorbing the carrying trade of the world in sixteen o four raleigh in a remarkable memoir to james i complained that english enterprise was confined to fetching coals from newcastle to london and at the same date the fleets of the republic were to be found in the east indies the moluccas java guinea ceylon the malaccas sumatra the cape of good hope brazil the coromandel coast malabar and had captured the chief portuguese possessions in asia and africa by sixteen sixty nine john de witt was able with truth to say that the hollanders had well-nigh beaten all nations by traffic out of the seas and become the only carriers of goods throughout the world and in sixteen seventy their position is thus described in the lex mercatoria the commerce of holland which may be termed universal reassembles in the united provinces this infinite number of merchandises which it afterwards diffuses in all the rest of europe it produces hardly anything and yet has wherewith to furnish other people all they can have need of it is without forests and almost without wood and there is not seen anywhere else so many carpenters which work in naval construction its lands are not fit for the culture of vines and it is the staple or mart of wines which are gathered in all parts of the world and of brandies drawn from them it has no mines nor metals and yet there is found almost as much gold and silver as in new spain or peru as much iron as in france as much tin as in england and as much copper as in sweden the wheat and grains that are there sowed hardly suffice for nourishment of a part of its inhabitants and it is notwithstanding from hence that the greatest part of its neighbours receive them either for their subsistence or their trade in fine it seems as if the spices grew there that the oils were gathered there that it nourished the precious insects which spin the silk and that all sorts of drugs for medicine or dyeing were in the number of its products and of its growth its warehouses are so full and its merchants seem to carry so much to strangers that there is not a day that ships do not come in or go out and frequently entire fleets this is the more remarkable as in sixteen fifty one a rude blow had been struck at the commercial supremacy of the dutch in that year the famous act of navigation had been passed in england 
by which it was provided that no merchandise the product of asia africa or america should be imported into england in any but english built ships commanded by an english master and navigated by a crew three-fourths of whom should be englishmen nor any european goods except in english ships or in ships belonging to the countries from which these articles originally came no fish might be exported from or imported into england or ireland except of english taking by this law the carrying trade with england was utterly destroyed it led to a repetition of the great duel between the two countries in sixteen fifty two tromp to signify his power to sweep the seas sailed down the channel with a broom at his masthead naval battles the like of which had never been seen filled the next two years but in sixteen fifty four when the masterfulness of cromwell and the genius of blake had finally triumphed the republic was forced to make peace on terms which showed that the command of the sea was passing to her enemy not only was she compelled to assent to the navigation act as well as to other conditions no less humiliating but she even agreed that dutch ships as well of war as others meeting any of the ships of war of the english commonwealth in the british seas shall strike their flag and lower their topsails it was not to be expected that with her traditions and resources she would contentedly bear this badge of inferiority her feeling at the time of the restoration was a burning desire to recover her old position End of section twelve